0: Good morning. morning. It is good to be with you all. Uh, It's always wonderful to be here at Henson and to have uh, old friendships rekindled, to see the Lord's work here. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to open God's word with you today. Uh, It's wonderful to be able to have the Lord's day together. The Lord's day is very much uh, an oasis in the life of a Christian. I mean, for the fellowship of the saints uh, like members that I, I've met here and gotten to know some over the years. Uh, some we've actually shared with you who've moved from DC to here. Others from here we've gotten in DC. It's just wonderful to have the fellowship among co laborers in the gospel. And what a beautiful place. If those of you who visited our church, you know your church building is eerily like ours, uh, built literally the same couple of years. Uh, the two ministers at the time actually knew each other. Henson and uh, John Compton Ball at our church were friends. Um, yours was more theological, ours was more of a showboat, but there it was. Um, and you all actually succeeded in building a, a building, as I say, very much like ours, except we had the brilliant idea of putting a wall right down the middle of it with a little opening. So it's, this is a far superior space. I hope you enjoy it. This morning I know I'm appreciating the beauty. Uh, The Lord's Day is uh, not merely a time for instruction and equipping. Uh, It's a time for refreshing. It's a time for renewal. I hope you've been feeling that as we've been hearing God's word read from Revelation 21, uh, as we've been greeted and certainly as we've sung and prayed together. Sunday's a day to take stock, uh, to realize that another week is upon us. One has passed and so, as we come to this beginning of a new week, I just ask you to pause and just consider how you're doing. How are you? One week is gone, yet another one. Here another one is coming on us. Let me tell you two groups that are large and that I guess are both represented here this morning in good numbers. Some Christians have turned up this morning, resigned in your spirit. You've concluded that it doesn't really matter how you are. You'll put on a good show. But you are really just a, a tiny cog in a machine. You've concluded that it doesn't really matter how you are, that you've learned that you're not really that important life has taught you hard lessons all of life's circumstances have seemed to conspire together even to teach you this from disappointments at home to frustrations perhaps even here at church from friendships to religion to finances to health this world either has not delivered or when it has what it delivers seems to be broken and in fact this has happened so many times that you've come to the conclusion that it doesn't really matter. And so your own heart has grown indifferent, apathetic, cold. People have wronged you. They continue to disappoint you. At least you have the consolation you're old enough to not be surprised at that anymore. It's a kind of maturity of a kind that you have. You've watched life go on too long with answers not given and wrongs not righted. Another large group today, and one which I also assume has representatives here, are the hopeless. These are similar to the resigned, the first group I just described, and there may be some overlap, but what marks these is not that this life has been so disappointing, but that the next seems so removed, so vague, so unreal. There's a bit of an emotional disconnect with some of the phrases that we've sung. You lack a larger hope than yourself or things you can accomplish in your own power. Perhaps you've begun with great energy, giving yourself to good works, maybe even beginning with some grand plans. But again, the circumstances of life uh, seem to have removed much of that, one by one. Either because you get them, and when you get them, they seem so small and unsatisfying, or because you don't. And so your hopes begin to recede, permanently. They come to seem unreal. So whether you're in your late 20s or your mid-60s, the hopes of this life no longer inspire. Uh, You're left to navigate what remains of it without a compass, without a pole star, without uh, a, a GPS. You may be driving faster than the resigned person but you don't know where you're going. Well, if you're here in either of those situations, feeling that what you do doesn't really matter, that you you don't really matter, or feeling that you have no hope, I think the Old Testament prophet Isaiah has something wonderful to tell you today. In fact, for anyone struggling this morning, Isaiah has an important message for you. So let's open our Bibles to the book of Isaiah. You'll find it in chapters 30. I'm looking particularly at chapters 34, 35. Isaiah is a large book. If you're looking at the books of the Bible as continents, the Psalms is Asia and Isaiah is pretty much Africa. It's the next largest continent or North America. It's it's a very, it's a vast book, 66 chapters. But just like when you come out here to a large place like Oregon, you can find your way around by a great monument. So when the weather's a little better, Mount Hood is very helpful in orienting you. Well, the Mount Hood of Isaiah uh, chapters 36, 37, the next two coming up uh, that we won't be looking at together, but I'm getting you ready for them today. Uh, You can go read them on your own. This is really the prep work, though, that 36, 37 is the story of the Assyrians threatening Jerusalem and then the Lord delivering them. And the, all 66 chapters of Isaiah are really about that. It's a very thick frame around those two chapters. The two before that we're looking at are the prep work for that, uh, which are a little bit less, less situational, which is why I thought that might be good for us to think about today. Chapters 34 and 35 are looking at the Lord preparing his people for judgment on the Assyrians and deliverance of themselves. So, as you look at Isaiah, let me just give you a quick reminder of who he is. He's a prophet uh, from Jerusalem uh, from about 740 B.C. to the first decade of the 600s. clock is going backwards, as it were, the dates in in B.C., so don't be confused. From 740 to 600, so for more than 50 years. It's a long-term public figure. They're very rare in life. Uh, Queen Elizabeth II, uh, Winston Churchill... Frederick Douglass, John Quincy Adams. I mean, people who are in the public eye decade after decade after decade after decade after decade are very rare, and Isaiah was actually one of those. Uh, This book is a compilation of the prophetic words that God gave him, most of which would have been first given orally and then perhaps repeatedly, but then which God told him to write down. We don't know Uh, that he wrote these in chronological order, either of when he was given them or of the events being prophesied. Uh, But it was a time of international instability. The nation of Judah, who's sort of in the middle of the the countries that are talked about in the book, uh, the nation of Judah was fearing for the future. And Isaiah spent his decades calling the people to rely upon God. So specifically, if you flip with me through the book, let's just physically flip through it for a moment just to give you an orientation in it. Just turn to chapter 1. Let's just look at it. I'm not going to read it. But chapters 1 to 12 are where Isaiah has presented this call from God to warn Judah and yet promise of a future restoration. And this is so typical of the Bible. If you're new to the Bible there is this double track of warning and promise from Genesis to Revelation. And that's going on here in Isaiah. So chapters 1 to 12, God has presented this call to really warn his people and promise a future restoration. And then chapters 13 to 27, so if you look through those, God urges his people to repent of trusting in other nations, whether it's, it's Babylon to their northeast or Egypt to their southwest. Uh, These alliances that they would have, or alliances they have with smaller nations to try to deliver them. They were to trust in God alone. And then looking at chapters 28 to 33, we see that God promised in chapter 28 that Samaria, that's Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom of Israel, was about to be judged and destroyed. And this is one of those prophecies that's not a distant prophecy, It happened several lifetimes later. It happened in 722 BC. It happened very quickly and suddenly. The northern kingdom of Israel, the the northern ten tribes, were judged. And Isaiah spent his decades calling the people of God to rely upon God. Because Judah was fearing for its future because of what happened. So those same Assyrians who just destroyed the northern kingdom would be used by God to judge the southern kingdom of Judah as well, but differently, because this time at the last minute, like I just mentioned, God would deliver them from Assyria just to make it clear that the earthly powers were not to be trusted. Earthly powers like Egypt or Babylon, but God alone should be finally trusted and feared and relied upon. In that sense, Isaiah is teaching the same message in the book of Exodus, where God brought his people out of bondage to Egypt, and by defeating the powerful empire of Egypt to liberate his people, he showed that he was to be relied upon more than any earthly power. God is making the same point yet again in the book of Isaiah, centuries later. Uh, you'll note when you study the Bible, the same themes surface again and again. And that's because the people of God in seven or 600 BC were very much like us today. We're a little forgetful. We tend to need to be told the same lessons decade after decade, month after month, Sunday by Sunday. We need the same rhythms of truth repeated to us. The same reason as children... Our parents lovingly instructed us, and then with some amount of patience instructed us again, and then yet again, and then yet again. It's the same thing the Lord does with his people. He shows us that he is to be relied upon. So in all of these chapters, we see the recurring themes Of judgment and salvation. And now, in the two chapters I want us to look at, chapters 34 and 35, you have the summation, the climax of judgment and salvation of why God's people should rely on God alone ultimately. So we're going to work through first chapter 34 of God's coming judgment, and then in chapter 35, God's coming salvation. And as we work through these two chapters, I hope and pray that you and your life uh, as individual Christians you'll see that your life does matter to God and that you'll find that the only hope large enough for you to really live on is God being his, trusting in him. And if you already know these things and have this hope, I pray that you will be encouraged and strengthened to continue to live and serve others in this hope. And if you leave here encouraged and strengthened, this will be a morning well spent. If you're here and you don't have this hope yet, I pray that the Lord will help you to come to understand how in Jesus Christ he has brought this hope even to your door today. And I pray that you'll be able to walk through that door and have that hope as your very own. So let me address you directly as Isaiah does in his prophecies. Brothers and sisters, do you feel that in your weakness here today, You're about to give way to fear in your heart. Are there some circumstances that are are threatening you as you consider the days and weeks ahead? Well, I have some encouragement here for you. Two basic encouragements in these two chapters. First, hold on because God's judgment is coming and it's universal God's judgment is coming, and it's universal. None will escape it. Look there in chapter 34, beginning at verse 1. "'Draw near, O nations, to hear, and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out, and the stench of their corpses shall rise.' The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. So unbelief and opposition to God will finally be overthrown, all of it. Rebellion will end in rebels being judged. And really, this is a a kind of poetic description of being sent to hell. Uh, That's the message here. This destruction that's envisioned is terrible. The word translated there in verse 2 as devoted to destruction means to fall under God's judgment and be devoted to God's condemnation to be doomed. And that's why the images there in verse 3 are so drastic, uh, even grotesque. Uh, And Friends, you can be sure that if merely reading about God's judgment is terrible, well, that's far less terrible than actually facing it. God will judge all that in this world and all that comes out of it, he says. I'm sure you've heard the phrase, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. And that that's fine for this world, this life, that's our only hope for any of us. But it's not an ultimate statement because finally the sinner and the sin become inseparable after this life. And God will not betray his own character of goodness and right. This judgment is not limited merely to this world. You see in verse 4, he warns that all the host of heaven shall rot away. All their hosts shall fall. These had been the object of idolatrous worship by the Assyrians and by the native Canaanites. Perhaps it refers to, refers to the fallen angels being judged. Jesus actually quotes this passage in Matthew 24 when he teaches his disciples about the end of the world. This is the language the New Testament uses to talk about the final judgment of God. So if nothing else, we could tell from this phrase in verse 4, the sky rolled up like a scroll. Well, that lets you know you're dealing with the very end. This is not dealing with some immediate judgment in between now and the end. No, the sky being up, rolled up like a scroll means it, this world is done. It's over. Th- this age is no more. And that lets us know that we're at the end. And it makes it clear that no one will escape this judgment. No exceptions no loopholes, no avoiding it because of this or that particularly religious family member or merely because you're a member of a church or actively involved in one. No, if, if you, brother and sister, have been wronged, hold on. God's verdict is coming. God's judgment is coming. It's universal, And it's coming for our sake. God will do this for his people's sake. Beginning again with chapter 34, this time at verse 5. "'For my sword has drunk its fill in the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. The Lord has a sword, it is sated with blood, it is gorged with fat, and with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams.' For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra, a great slaughter in the land of Edom. Wild oxen shall fall with them, young steers with the mighty bulls. Their land shall drink its fill of blood, and their soil shall be gorged with fat. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. So God's judgment upon Edom will uphold Zion's cause, that is his people's cause. So Edom was a nation nearby that had treacherously treated the people of God, betraying them militarily uh, more than once. Edom is not called to bring a sacrifice, but to be a sacrifice. Edom is the nation that was south of the Dead Sea, uh, the descendants of Esau, and longtime opponents of God's people. In the Exodus, they wouldn't even let them pass through their land back in Numbers 20. During the days of the Babylonian exile, a little over 100 years years after this, they would take advantage of Judah. So God says for the sake of his people, or as he puts it here in verse 8, he would uphold Zion's cause by judging them. What will most help God's people is not everything getting better for everyone, but God vindicating his people and thereby his own name and character. This is no statement about the secular government in modern-day Israel. Don't misunderstand this prophecy. No, this is a commitment meant to strengthen God's people, knowing that finally God will defend us and he will condemn those who wrong us. And God kindly gives that as a word of comfort to his people here couple of things to notice. Number one, for a season, God withholds the justice that his people want. Justice doesn't come immediately. God has a purpose in the passage of time. We may doubt it, but God says here that he has a day of vengeance coming. He has his reasons for delaying the justice that you long for. The second thing here, God is kind to explain to his people about his coming judgment of his enemies and the vindication of his people. He tells them this in the context of Isaiah's ministry, much of which is spent correcting and rebuking God's people for failing and being tempted away from the Lord to trust in other things. So, friends, when we are in positions of responsibility... How have we dealt with those under our authority? Have we taken time to explain the larger good that some things we do they don't understand is aiming at? It's like the writer of the Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, our fathers disciplined us for a while as they thought best. There was a good purpose, even though the child for the time may not experience an understanding of it. Still, God's purpose is good. Our earthly fathers were acting for our good, even when that good might have been painful at the time. Well, well, how kind and how like a good father God is for explaining to his people something of what he's doing when he would delay fulfilling immediately their hopes. It seems to be a part of the fall that we experience weight as no. Well, it's not really true. Every parent here knows that we actually will often say "wait" as the precursor to a "yes" that will come at the right time. You know, may I have my driver's license? As the fourteen-year-old, wait. Well, that means no. Well, not exactly. I mean, yes, kind of, but no, not not exactly. It means it means wait. Wait may be more costly than we realize to God. Because waiting to vindicate us is also waiting to vindicate his own name. Because his name is tied up with his people. As the great multitude in heaven shouts just before the passage we heard from Revelation 21 in Revelation 19, when God finally does offer true judgment, true and just are his judgments. You see how this chapter is a chapter for weary saints, uh, for people who are God's people but are experiencing trials with no good understanding of why. Hold on, he's saying here, because God's coming judgment is forever. It is final and permanent. Look again at chapter 34. Let me begin reading with verse 9. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch, and her soil into sulfur. Her land shall become burning pitch. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. But the hawk and the porcupine shall possess it. The owl and the raven shall dwell in it. He shall stretch the line of confusion over it and the plumb line of emptiness. Its nobles, there is no one there to call it a kingdom. And all its princes shall be nothing. Thorns shall grow over its strongholds, nettles and thistles in its fortresses. It shall be the haunt of jackals, an abode for ostriches. And wild animals shall meet with hyenas. The wild goat shall cry to his fellow. Indeed, there the night bird settles and finds for herself a resting place. There the owl nests and lays and hatches and gathers her young in her shadow. Indeed, there the hawks are gathered, each one with her mate. Seek and read from the book of the Lord. Not one of these shall be missing. None shall be without her mate. For the mouth of the Lord has commanded, and his spirit has gathered them. He has cast a lot for them. His hand has portioned it out to them with the line. They shall possess it forever. From generation to generation, they shall dwell in it. Friends, these days are the creatures that dwell in a land with no human activity left. It's a land made completely barren. The effects of God's judgment are that Edom will become a desert forever. Edom is dispossessed of their land a couple of centuries later. But even more than simply letting us know of Edom's fate, the whole chapter is aiming at all those who would oppose God And his reign. In that sense, Edom is functioning here as Babylon does in the earlier chapters of Isaiah, like Isaiah 13, in which a real historical enemy of God's people also typifies and represents all of those opposed to God's people and ultimately to God himself. So these temporal judgments on nations are pictures of God's coming eternal judgment on individuals. The point, again, of all these animals, variously translated because these nouns are used so rarely, it's not so much a kind of zoological survey so you can understand what Israel or Edom was like at the time, but it was making clear that this judgment will be so complete that it will be desolate of human habitation and a perfect place for undisturbed animal habitat, which is great for the animals, but not for the people. Look at this description of God's condemnation. Verse 9, it will be like a burning place, burning pitch. Most riveting, verse 10, it will be forever. It sounds like Revelation 14, when we see the the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. Or it sounds like the lake of fire mentioned in Revelation 20. Uh, Here in Isaiah 34, verse 11, God uses building instruments to carefully build destruction and chaos. Its name will be changed there in verse 12 to no kingdom. And then verse 13, the mention of thorns and nettles are reminders of the curse of God on sin. And we see in verse 16 that this has all been written down in the book of the Lord. That means all of this will be. It it is certain that this judgment will come. All sin is opposition to this all-powerful and all-good God, and all sin will be punished. So, friend, what that means for you here, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, is that's a future reality for you. What do you intend to do with your sin? Whatever you understand your sin to be, you will understand it more clearly when you stand before God in his presence, his perfectly good presence, to give an account. Friends, that's the good news that we've been singing about this morning. That's the good news that we're going to be participating in this depiction of in just a few minutes, that God has made a way, not just for good people to assemble once a week, but for needy people to come together and realize that as we bring our sins In sincere repentance and true trust in what God has done in Christ, he has made a way for us to himself. He has caused his judgment to fall on Christ. Jesus Christ, God's only son incarnate, lived a perfectly good life. And he took upon himself all of the judgment against sin for all of us who would ever turn and trust in him. He gave his life on the cross as a sacrifice, bearing God's wrath, his penalty for our sins. And God accepted that, we can tell, because God raised him from the dead. He ascended to heaven. He presented this sacrifice to his heavenly father. He calls us all now to turn from our sins and to trust in him. This is the good news that we have to present. It only makes sense with this very bleak picture of the bad news before us. Uh, the truth about our situation. That's how our news becomes so good. So, friend, for you, I would just call you to turn. Turn from your sin. Learn what it means to turn to Christ. Uh, Study with a friend here. Go through Mark's gospel. Read and see what God has done in Christ, how he has provided for us. Uh, Christ forever exhausted the claims of God's justice on all of those who would repent of their sins and trust in him. So he's saying here, Christians, hold on. Don't be deceived by worldly power or circumstances. Know that God's judgment never ends, but our trials do. Whether trials at church or trials at home, they will end. As that time nears, will you tell other people about that? A lot of us were just here this weekend, yesterday and Friday at a conference, thinking about telling this good news to other people. We've got tremendous news. Will you share this good news with others? Because God's judgment is coming. And we want to tell people about Christ. Brothers, sisters, today, are you feeling weak? Are you feeling feeble, like you don't know if you can hold on? We'll hear encouragements from God's word. Hold on, chapter 34, because judgment is coming, but also in chapter 35, because God's salvation is coming. And this salvation includes the glory of God. Uh, God's glory will be seen more fully in this world, his splendor, how delightful he is. Uh, Look in chapter 35 at the beginning. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Now, some people, when they come to church, only like to hear chapter 35. The last thing they want to hear is chapter 34. That's what all the the theologically liberal churches in Portland are like. They just want the good news. They don't want to hear the bad But what they don't realize is that without the truth of the bad news, the goodness of the good news begins to fade. If there's no judgment, if there's not really any sin, then the cross itself of Christ becomes not so extraordinary. It's just one more passing, sad example of human, perhaps heroic suffering. But friends, in order to understand the glory of chapter 35, you have to stare at the night of chapter 34 and wrestle with it and try to understand why would a good God judge? And as your soul wrestles with that, and particularly if you come into view, you yourself, as you think about that, then you're in the right place to see something of the splendor Of the salvation of God provided in chapter 35. Yes, the the wilderness will rejoice and and blossom. Praise God for how God presents this by blessing our work. But even the greatest changes and restorations and progress that we're able to see in our lifetime are only a a slight foretaste of what's to come. The kind of gladness and blossoming and blooming and splendor that Isaiah tells us about in chapter 35 it is not referring to the Israeli citrus industry's creative use of ir- irrigation. No, I- Isaiah here is describing a splendor and a glory that are merely introductory to our seeing, as he says in verse 2, the glory of God the splendor of our God. So, yes, the wilderness will rejoice and blossom, but that's the lesser glory of that great day. In the Garden of Eden, man's sin turned the garden into a desert. Now God is going to reverse that. Some of you are familiar with the Chronicles of Narnia, and you know the, the line, the witch, in the wardrobe, that in the land of Narnia, while it was under the spell of the white witch, it was always winter but never Christmas. Well, then when her power is broken, Narnia breaks out in this magnificent springtime of green leaves and flowers of all colors. Well, friends, Lewis may have drawn that idea from the Bible from passages like this one. You see there in chapter 35 in verse 1, the, the crocus, and that's the, the flower that by its blossom, we know the early spring is representing the end of winter and Brothers and sisters, this winter that we're in now, and I don't mean this season right now in Portland. There's no weather reference. I mean the spiritual winter that we are all in some measure living in. This will one day end. As we see here in verse 2, the glory and splendor of restored creation reflects the glory and splendor of God. Brothers and sisters, we are stuck in a world that mistakes winter spiritually speaking, for all of reality. And a Christian church is a society of people who know the spring is coming. And we meet in in anticipation and celebration of that hope, of that coming springtime of God with his people and his creation restored. We've seen dim glimmers of this even in our fallen world, when authority is used well. And it makes us long for more of a good use of power. To see God in his glory and to be with him is our greatest need and desire. It's our greatest longing. And we can know that this most fundamental need will be met. We have that confidence because of the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Work as we might and may and must against the effects of the fall in this world. We can never finally reverse them on our own. And that's because the worst effect of the fall has to do with God's profound, visible absence from our world. We can't see him here. Only God can end this worst effect of the fall in our world. And he alone does that by returning. And he's given us a down payment of that in the coming of Christ. Doesn't John 1.14 say that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us? We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father full of grace and truth. So hold on, dear saint, because God's salvation is coming. And that includes bringing the justice of God So confidence in God's coming judgment should give us courage. That's what we're thinking of in in chapter 34. We know this justice is coming. So here in chapter 35, verse 3, he writes to the weak. I, I love the frank acknowledgment that the redeemed are weak. We can be so discouraged and weary by the desire we have for justice and good being apparently unmet. And so God exhorts us here in chapter 35 in verses 3 and 4, strengthen the weak hands. And make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Seven hundred years later, when an early Christian pastor is writing to some Christians who were getting confused and discouraged and were thinking about giving up, in Hebrews 12, he quotes this very verse. In some ways, you could say that this exhortation here in verse 4 be strong fear not, is Isaiah's central message. If you have your own copy of the Bible with you, you might want to just put a square around it. Be strong, fear not. That's the basic message of Isaiah. God's people were fearing the nations and relying on the nations and ignoring God both ways. They were ignoring God by their fears, and they were ignoring God by what they relied on. And the Lord was telling them here that he is a bigger problem to them than the nation's. And he is a bigger solution for them to rely on and more certain than any of the problems they were facing. He says here in verse 4 that he will come. God will personally come to save. That's, he was gonna, that's what he was going to do in their history, and that's what you can go on and read this afternoon in chapters 36 and 37 if you want. And that's what he's done ultimately in the incarnation of the Son of God in Jesus Christ. That's what he will finally do when Christ returns. Well, we see him talking about this recreation here in verses 5 to 7. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. God's provision will be wonderful. Praise God for all of these foretastes that we have in this testimonies that we see here of what God will do. Friends, we get little previews of that in our churches all the time. Do you all share testimonies here before somebody's baptized? So every time you've heard a testimony of someone to be baptized, a testimony of their coming to Christ, you've been seeing one of these sort of previews of the spring that's coming just in an individual life. This hope is breaking through. Friends, every time we hear someone's testimony, I think perhaps one of the greatest privileges of pastoral ministry is how close we get to be to hear so many of these stories of people coming to Christ and seeing lives previously distraught now beginning to be made new. Every time reminding me of what he's done by his grace in my own life. Well, hold on, dear Christian, he's saying because God's final salvation is coming and it will bring joy from God, everlasting joy. You see how he ends this chapter 35, verse eight, and a highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. And their ransom to the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. People see God's holiness in this book, like in Isaiah's call in chapter 6, that vision in Isaiah's day, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Or here in verse 8, the way of holiness. And people sometimes have the impression that holiness is something stiff and stifling and somber and limiting, but nothing could be further from the truth. The holiness you see in the Bible is full of life and life-giving. This highway in verse 8 is called that because it's the highway that leads to God. And what is that way? Remember what Jesus said? I am the way. He's the highway that leads to God. Oh, friend, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, that's the way you want to learn more of. That's what you want to talk to a friend of yours who's a Christian. See if they can help you study more about Jesus and pray and understand what it can mean for you to be on that way back to God through Jesus. Jesus told his disciples that he was the way. And if you look in the early chapters of Acts about the earliest Christians, they were called followers of the way. This is the way back to God. Well, who are those who are on the way? We look here in Isaiah 35 at verse nine. We're, we're the redeemed. That's the first time Isaiah uses that word. It implies one willingly uh, chooses to pay the price for us. We have a redeemer, someone who has reset our value. And so we are the redeemed. We have been redeemed. Our redeemer is Jesus. There is a symbol of the price he's paid, his own body and blood. And by that, those of us who participate in this, we give witness to the fact that we are the redeemed. We are the repurchased. We are the rebought. That's us. We are gratefully indebted to him. This puts us in the great ark of salvation from Exodus to Calvary. This is what we're meant. We're called here in verse 10... The, the ransomed, verse 10, Isaiah says, the ransomed shall return. These are the ones he's coming to save up in verse 5. The image is one of returning exiles, of liberated slaves. We see this beautiful prophecy here. The hope of the returning exiles from Babylon is intertwined and mingled with the final hope of God's people in the future. In that return from exile, the returning Israelites would be participating in a massive reenactment of the Exodus. So even as God had delivered his people of the Exodus, so coming back from Babylon, they would be doing a reenactment, as it were. They were giving a small preview of the new Exodus that Christ is leading us in even today as he takes his people back home into the land purchased for them. Well, I hope you can see something of what this is saying here, something of the encouragement there is for us in this passage. Notice what we have and what we don't have. It's interesting in this description here, one thing we have, we have singing in verse 10. Did you notice that? I love this mention of singing. We won't just enter Zion. We'll enter it with singing. Why mention singing? Well, he said here, we won't have sorrow and sighing. They will flee away. No disappointments admitted into heaven. So this holiness that we're being called into is real holiness, and it isn't fundamentally a self-denying asceticism. It's a holiness that includes singing because of joy and gladness. Brothers and sisters, this encourages us because We Christians are exiles. We need to know this world is not our home. We need to know that we're exiles. We need to understand that we are pilgrims here and now. We we need to know that we are headed to a place where we won't be pilgrims. Instead, we'll be home. We are exiles who long to be home in the unmediated presence of God with his favor on us and pleasures in us because of Christ. And we will be. We will then be in the one place, we'll be completely content to stay forever. His presence. The voice that spells forgiveness will say, you may go, you've been let off the penalty which your sins deserve. But the verdict, which means acceptance, will say, you may come. You are welcome to all my love and my presence. Brothers and sisters, acceptance by the Lord is what we're presented with here. You feel the the joy of this confidence? When my wife Connie and I were facing some trials in our family, one pastor friend kindly wrote to us, and urged us to face our trials as an opportunity to witness to the truth of the gospel and to do that practically by out-rejoicing those who are not trusting in Christ even through the most challenging trials and temptations. And how can we not, friends, with this presence of God promised, this salvation coming, restoring his glorious presence with us, Uh, righting all the wrongs we've suffered, recreating that which has been ravaged and destroyed by sin, bringing gladness and everlasting joy with him. So, friend, you have a choice. Pretend that this world is home and face exile forever. Or realize and admit that you're in exile and that you need God to bring you home. You can hold on to your fear of man and fear of this world and what it contains as you worship it and reject God and his plans and so face his judgment. You have been warned. Or you can hold on to faith in Christ as you fear the Lord and worship him alone and accept his plans and his promises of joy and gladness to come. You can hold on to one way or the other. You can't hold on to both. Trust in Christ for your salvation. Trust in Christ for your endurance in serving him. Choose redemption and restoration and return. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would work in each one of our hearts to bring us more truly to you, and so knit us together. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.